Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Why is it so hard to get along with people? This is the time of year when people tend to make resolutions. They're going to eat less, study more, work harder, things like that. But how many of us resolve to get along with others better? Don't we usually assign good reasons to our problems with others? I'm joined today by Tim Yarbrough, a man with an impressive resume in terms of building the kingdom of God. He is a devoted husband, father, and grandfather, an entrepreneur, a teacher, a counselor, and a peacemaker. Thanks for joining me, Tim. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. So have I left anything out of your resume? Uh, yes, a, a sinner saved by grace. All right. Well, 2020 has been a year where all sorts of issues have served to divide people in families, where they work, in churches. And with lockdowns and isolation, those divisions seem to be growing. So what is your take on all of this and how we might best learn to get along with people? Well, that's a, a really great question. It runs the gamut of uh, relationships here in our area. Uh, we are discovering that we we're having to do a lot more counseling within families. Uh, 80% of the, the uh, counseling that we do is related to families within the Protestant church world. And we, we have seen a marked escalation of conflict uh, within families. And in, in addition to that, uh, we've seen uh, marked conflicts within congregations of people uh, related to different things, uh, you know, related to the presidential election, related to the uh, mask uh, mandates, uh, the virus thing, uh, and just these, these constant issues that uh, bring conflict. And so uh, this, this has been a really great year to, to be taught of the Lord about conflict resolution and how we as Christians uh, can be identified as the people within a culture uh, who can bring peace as much as possible to a situation, or we can bring uh, clear-cut resolutions where peace is not possible. So with that, we, we, we kind of like to start uh, with the, uh, the preference that God has, and that is how do we communicate with fellow believers. Uh, if we are unable to, in our relationships as Christian people, if we're unable to maintain cordial and godly relationships among ourselves, it is the height of arrogance to think we're going to teach the rest of the world how to do it. Uh, in fact, it would be a fundamental violation of scripture because the, the Lord says to us, he that is faithful in little will be faithful in much, but he that is unjust in little will be unjust in much. All right. So, so let me stop you for a second there, Tim. Okay. So it seems to me that you're differentiating between 
people of covenant, people of the faith, and people outside the faith. And and you're saying if Christians can't figure this out among themselves, then they lose a lot of credibility if they decide to go out into the secular world and say, we have answers, we have solutions. Yeah, it's viewed as hypocrisy primarily because that's exactly what it is. Okay. So my experience in church circles, especially when people start getting into doctrinal positions, is that they sort of get cement boots on and are sure that if people don't agree with them, that you might even question their status as members of the Christian faith. Because very few people hold to a position they say is wrong. They're sure they're right. So when you have people in conflict, both sides are sure they're right. What's the first step? Well, when you when you have that type of situation, if those who understand and have been taught of God about his sovereignty, that God is sovereign in salvation, and that his sovereignty is probably, in my view, the most comforting doctrine of the entire scriptures. Uh, if we are people who become uh, rancorous and uh, we become uncontrolled and we lose discipline, we deny the very doctrine we claim to believe in because with those other people in our communities, God is as sovereign over illumination as he is over salvation. And so what often happens is, is that instead of focusing our prayer life toward the Lord and asking God to open up the hearts and the minds of people, we try to do what only the Holy Spirit can do to illuminate the minds of men and women. We do have a duty to teach them, but the scripture instructs us that we are in patience to instruct those that oppose themselves. So if we believe that they're in error, we are to patiently instruct them with hopes that God will illuminate their minds and uh, entrust to the sovereign providence of God to do that. Otherwise, we, we try to play the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and uh, that generally doesn't get us anywhere. Well, not only that, if we're going to be consistent in our faith and say that God sovereignly brought us to an awareness of him, he drew us in, why do we suddenly abandon that doctrine and figure we've got to bully or argue people into the kingdom? Well, my, my personal take on that is, uh, over the years, what I have witnessed is uh, underneath it is pride. Uh, we're proud of our positions, uh, and we forget a fundamental principle that we have been taught in scriptures. Uh, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Those who God has redeemed whom the Lord has trained and taught in scripture and has been pleased to show them uh, about his sovereignty and his care. We, we received all that. It wasn't anything of our own doing. And so then to become proud of the fact that we were recipients of gifts that were orchestrated through grace is 
is just fundamentally wrong and a wrong approach. Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount tells us that blessed are the peacemakers, and yet other parts of Scripture tell us that we can't purport a peace that isn't centered on the peace that only comes from being restored in fellowship to the Trinitarian God. So balance those two things out. We don't want to have, um, you know, a cold war with people and just say, all right, we have detente. But at the same time, we don't want to draw such stringent lines that we have the body of Christ fighting against each other. Well, I think the scriptures give us the answer there. And, and it requires what we call wisdom of the moment. But the scripture says, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. And so as believers, to the degree that it is permissible for us to do so, we pursue peace with all men. Uh, and, uh, you know, we give preference uh, as it says, teaches us in Galatians 6.10, that we are to do good unto all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And so when we reach out to believers and we interact with them, here's where I have found the, the, the greatest opportunity to break down what could otherwise be barriers. is in, in, Because generally what happens is that these things happen in conversations. These disagreements happen in conversations. But if you go out and you do the kingdom together, not just theoretically discuss it, but you literally do the kingdom. For instance, the care of widows, helping the oppressed. What do you do with single moms with kids that need groceries and clothes? How about fixing up their house or fixing the plumbing? What if we got together with these other believers and we actually did the kingdom? This is why I have a real apprehension about, for instance, uh, social media uh, Christianity. Because what it does, it, it confines you to words and terminology and not actions where you are actually able to engage in the ethics of the kingdom. So what we discover is when we go out and we do the work of the kingdom together, that there's generally a far greater consensus. And in doing the kingdom together, the animosities that can arise uh, are subsided, or uh, we have seen many opportunities or many uh, instances where uh, individuals that maybe had disagreements one with another and so forth, we're able to make reconciliation on ethical grounds. What you that mean by that is they were working on the same premise of building the kingdom. And so some of those other things became less important. Absolutely. When you start with an individual and what think you of Christ, that is the first question. And uh, because it's, everything else is keyed off of that particular question. What think you of Christ? Well, who knows what the Lord may have given them as a background or anything uh, like that. We don't know that in, in many cases, but what we can do is when we 
See, because in, in them, if they are a child of God, the same thing happened to them that happened to me, that happened to the believer in India or Russia or China or California. What happened was God took from them a heart of stone, gave them a heart of flesh, and he wrote the exact same law on their hearts. It comes out in different expressions, but when you do the kingdom of, or the ethics of the kingdom together, you see that it begins to come out. Well, perhaps they've just never thought it through or, or, or discerned it. And it gives you an opportunity to talk of these things and it will resonate with you and resonate with Christians. You will have this identification because of Jesus Christ in the ethic of God and it will cause these things to be more valuable uh, to us. Uh, for instance, uh, we, we really try to highlight the application of the Ten Commandments because you, everybody can remember them and it's easy to teach them. And then from that point on, you can talk about the application of the Ten Commandments, the ethics of it. And if you pursue that, what happens is, is that a lot of these other divisions that are created by simple discussions begin to fall in line with ethical pursuit. And then the doctrines, uh, you know, the, the scripture says, Tim Yarbrough, if you commit your work unto the Lord, he will establish your way. It's oftentimes in doing the ethics of the kingdom that God gives us the illumination of understanding of the scriptures. Because we, we have this application of it and God begins to teach us uh, like the heart of God for widows or the abused or the vulnerable or for children in the womb. And, and these things become alive and they become real and they begin to take on greater importance. One of my favorite uh, scenes in a movie is Torture for Christ. And in there, uh, you they're in a prison camp. And this is and, Richard Wormbrunt. Yes. Uh-huh. And they're, and they're having this conversation, this, this group of believers, and uh, one of them says, well, this must be Saturday. And the other one says to them, well, how do you know? And he said, well, they're beating the seven-day Adventists today. <laughs> and, and, and so these, these things that can be, uh, you know, important things in their own respect, begin to take on a proper level of prioritization when you do the kingdom together. Right. Okay, so most people hearing this might say, yeah, well, that's easier to do, whether or not they were doing it before, but it's easier to do. But now we're in a lockdown situation where even if you wanted to go help certain people or get together, the state is prohibiting it. and so politics seems to become the umbrella over disagreements, who you voted for, as you said, whether or not you wear a mask. And there are some people who um, are very strong on everybody should, and there are some who, said, who say only those who feel they should should, and then there are those who say nobody should. The problem is, is that it becomes hard to separate yourself from a position when your contact with other people tends to be social media. And then we have this kind of, well, you should give in because of the doctrine of the weaker brother. And the other person says, no, no, you should give in. And so you see people throwing scripture at each other. And in the process, we don't have any peace. 
Mm -hmm. Well, the, it, it is an issue um, in terms of social media. I, I remember in the year 2010, uh, the Lord, because of my tendencies uh, to be sinful in my responses or to, to simply not be faithful to what I know the scripture teaches, I had the Lord had me write out some rules of conduct for scripture that I, I had to commit myself to. And uh, so when I first got on social media in 2010, I was on there for about two weeks. And every single day, this was a new venture for me, but every single day I got on there, I would internally have more flame ons than I had experienced in a year. And that would happen to me in a day. And, and I just, I couldn't believe all this, but by the time that this happened to me, the Lord had trained me enough to know that this particular response that was going on inside of me was a danger sign. And so uh, after about two weeks, I, I shut off my social media and I said, if I'm going to do this, uh, I've got to have some rules of conduct that govern how I'm going to operate on social media. And, and, and so the Lord helped me. I drew up a list of, of conduct rules and things that had happened over the course of that time uh, that I knew would not lead to anything godly. So would you uh, mind uh, sharing what your rules were? Well, uh, some, of the, some of the rules were, uh, for instance, be a reflective thinker and not a reactive thinker. I, I believe that the scriptures teach those two positions. Uh, a reactive thinker is one who just reacts. Uh, a reflective thinker, the scripture says that a righteous man studies to answer. And then, uh, so well, just to interject there, the whole idea of being quick to listen and slow to speak sounds like that's a good biblical underpinning of that first rule. Yes. And so then, then the other thing was, is to be careful not to answer a fool according to his folly. And uh, you would, you would see people uh, on there who, I don't know where they got the time, uh, except I do know, constantly stirring up debates and so on and so forth. They certainly weren't pursuing, pursuing peace as much as it lies within them. Uh, they, they was right the opposite. So this is the great disadvantage of social media and uh, is that the, you can say things here in my community. I've lived here my whole life. I, I live eight miles from where I, I was born and raised. And I can say things here in my community uh, to people who have known me for a long time. And they're going to put that conversation in the context of the last 10 years or 20 years. I have a friend here. I have been friends with for 46 years and he's going to put that conversation in the context of all of that. And if I did the same thing on social media, I would get an entirely different reaction. And so I think what ha has happened to us is that we overvalue the expression of our opinion where it doesn't matter. There are things people say on social media that they would never say face to face with someone. Yes. And, and, and well, we, we swap the joy and the beauty of intentionally building 
genuine, real relationships in our communities where we have influence. I have influence in my community. Uh, I have people, both believers and unbelievers, who will come. Uh, they're not a part of our particular congregation or congregations that are kind of core to our, our whole community fellowship. Uh, but they will come and ask counsel or they'll come and ask for business advice. So they will come and, and, and solicit you to help them solve problems. And it's because of relationships. And we can go and we can sit down together and we can pray. And, and, and if myself and another brother or another family, we can sit down. Lord, we, we have this difference. And yet you command us to love one another. You command us uh, that we are to treat one another as brothers and sisters. And this is what we want to do. And, and focusing on what God requires of us then allows us to find a way that we can resolve the issue or if for instance it's something we we disagree on that we can we can become content that in god's sovereign administration of illumination we're willing to leave it there okay so being willing to leave it there um there's there's precedent in scripture you know, Paul had issues with someone who was working with him and and decided, you know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. And we'll, you know, God will work out the details, but we are going to operate in different arenas. How would you recommend people who have split over some hurtful things and on either side, how do people who've been hurt by other believers resolve their differences? We're actually in the middle of uh, handling a number of uh, issues like that. But in, in Leviticus 19, a fascinating passage of scripture. Uh, we, we all know the one, uh, you know, if you bite and devour, right, one another, be careful that you're not consumed one of another. It's easy to just become consumed with this biting and devouring. But in uh, Leviticus 19.18, the word of God teaches his people, thou shalt not avenge nor be mindful of wrong against the children of thy people. Or as the King James says, you shall not hold a grudge. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. In other words, holding wrongs or holding grudges is the exact opposite of loving our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, we're violating God's commandments. And so one of the things that has been proscriptive for us uh, and, and for my own life is that I have, the Lord has taught me to pray because I need, I need this prayer. It's found in Isaiah 43 and 21. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. And when I think about it, the Lord says to me and to every other believer, this people have I formed for myself. And, and the Lord converted that into a prayer uh, in our lives and in our meetings. Oh, Lord, help me to love your people. Because they're your people not because they particularly appeal to me or I like all the way they do things or 
you know, I, I'm, I'm 63 now. I'm nearly 64, and I've been a believer since I was 17. So I've, the Lord has had me uh, these 46 years walking in the faith and has been so pleased to give me some wonderful mentors. So I've had this experience of growing up and being taught and trained and disciplined in the Word of God. And we can have people who are in different places. They are in different backgrounds. And so we have to be willing to, to hear them out and to be careful of the grace of God that I look back at things that I believed when I was 25 and how I praise the Lord that the Lord does not remember all the transgressions of my youth. <laughs> so, I, and I'm very thankful for it. So we, we have to remember that the key thing or at least, and this is something I learned from Dr. Russ Dooney, which just revolutionized my life, my thinking. When Dr. Russ Dooney just kept pressing the point in his writings, and I ran across it in different places, and it always baffled me, uh, that there's no such thing as a personal relationship. And he kept saying that. And, and then he would explain it. And uh, it was one of those situations where my mind needed illumination to understand what God had already taught this brother. And I just couldn't get it. And I was sitting at my desk one day and just like God does to all of his children, the Lord opened up my mind and I understood that every relationship had to be mediated through the covenant. And it was like, like sunshine at noon. I mean, I just had such clarity about it, and I realized it applied to my marriage with my wife, that uh, my relationship with her was not personal. It was covenantal. I had to, and when I quit dealing in my marriage relationship as though my relationship were personal, and I began to deal with it covenantally, that is, I responded to what God commanded me first before I responded to, to her, it was a radical alteration in my conduct and, and it needed training. It needed discipline. It needed maturity. But I realized that in every instance, my obligation was to respond to God's covenant and his covenant requirements. So what would happen if believers were to say with their differences or their hurts, rather than responding to those things, what I'm going to do is respond to what God commands me. So, for instance, if you go to the altar to pray and there you remember that you have a brother that has all against you, leave your gift, get up, go set things right with your brother and come back and then offer up your gift. What normally happens, and this is how pride works, is that you'll have people who will say, well, I did remember it. And then they'll do something like this. Oh, Lord, give me the strength to go do what needs to be done. And what God said was, get up and go do it. He's already provided the strength. What you're looking for is a way out. Uh, be obedient because it's more important in the eyes of God that these things be resolved according to the order of God because he always intends to restore his order. That's, that's God's goal in our life with these instructions. He gave them to us because he knew we were going to need them. 
So when you have these things, instead of nursing that, uh, uh, you know, Mrs. Schwartz and I have a difference rather than nursing that. What if I were to say, Lord, you have commanded me to love this sister and I am going to love this sister. And even if uh, it was, let's say it was, was an evil done. What if we turn over to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, and we begin to applying that ethic of uh, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. If, if there's a real cause of vengeance that needs to be handled, that belongs to the Lord, not to us. It's interesting what you say here, because I've been reading through this really small book by J.R. Packer on the Lord's Prayer. And he points out that as we pray the Lord's Prayer, you could say they're just really one or two lines that have to do with sin. And it seems to be forgetting that we've been forgiven much and we should forgive others. And so that seems to tie in with what you're saying in terms of let's remember that we have much more that we've been forgiven than this other person I need to you know settle this account with. And that if we keep it covenantal, as you said, then we're always thinking in relationship to our relationship with Christ. Yes, I'm, I'm not looking so much for the play, pleasure of the other person as I'm looking for the pleasure of God. And it doesn't and, negate the idea of restitution. For example, the Bible is very clear if somebody damaged something, stole something, but in a lot of these cases, and that's why I like the rendition of trespasses rather than debts, because we tend to think of debts monetarily, but we trespass against each other all the time. And so if we keep that in mind, be willing to say, I will overlook that because there's really no way someone makes restitution for giving you a dirty look or saying something nasty, it, that's not where restitution comes into play. Yes. Well, oftentimes, I mean, if you take things like that and turn them into grudges, uh, you're, you're just looking for an opportunity. I mean, it's, it's a total violation of Philippians 4, 8. Uh, finally, brethren, think on these things. And if we think on those things, and, and I love the rendition in the Westminster Larger Catechism on uh, the Ninth Commandment, and, uh, and one of the best books uh, that I know of in terms of applied ethics of the Ninth Commandment is the uh, book Defend the Truth, uh, which Rebecca Sheets at Psalm 78 Ministries did uh, in her translation of Pierre Verre's uh, commentary on the ninth commandment. We've used that in our men's classes and other reading classes here uh, to help us to navigate how to honor Christ in our relationships and our words and, and so forth. And it has been so helpful uh, even where, you know, particularly where it's corrective in how you approach things. Which means that even in a time like this, we have ample opportunity to reinforce our faith by making use of the authors and teachers who have thought these things through. 
as bad as 2020 is, I think we'd both be hard pressed to say this is the worst time that Christendom has ever faced. Oh, and it's not even close in my view. Uh, I, I, I look at 2020 entirely different. Uh, I, I think this is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to Western civilization in the last 300 years or so. And because it's, it's forcing us to re-examine fundamental ideas about human existence, about society. We are experiencing a tremendous increase of interest in our sociological uh, presentations and studies and conversations with people about God's idea of how to, con- how, how to construct a culture and a, a social system. And it's because everything around us seems to be falling apart. You know, this has brought us to the place, too, where you, you, we, when we go back to the scriptures and we understand that Jesus Christ is the governor of the nations, and Isaiah tells us that the nations are before him as nothing. They're like dust on a balance. And we, we, we have so exalted nationhood against Christ that the, the whole purpose, I mean, in, in nations, he raises them up. He puts them down. And the only thing that makes a nation special in the sense of its long-term uh, existence is how well it honors the Lord and does the will of God. Otherwise, it's marked for judgment. Uh, God is going to be faithful to his covenant. He's going to bless those that obey him. He is going to curse those that disobey him. And we should be willing for it to be on God's timetable if we really believe that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and those who are the called. Yes, and, and like uh, one of the ones I have, uh, I actually have some friends who have tried to pull me into the uh, end of America as we know it routine uh, because the world is totally doomed if, if America falls. And, and I do believe that God has done a unique work in this nation in the last 400 years. I mean, with some of the things that the Lord has been pleased to have us be involved in in different parts of the world, we have seen how God has used the people of this country incredibly to enrich the lives of others who were in poverty or destitute or hurting or in pain. I mean, America has been used as a source of much good. I mean, I think uh, more so than any nation in history. And so there is this sense in, in which God has greatly used, and particularly the believing community here in America, for much good. And so if the Lord were to bring America to its end, the ramifications of that would be felt but none of it outside the government and the providence of God. At the same time, what we have witnessed inside of our nation has been a wonderful thing where the Lord has begun to do what we call the Gideon Seminar. The Lord has begun to whittle down people because there's too many, uh, maybe perhaps in the battle. There, there's this core group of people throughout this country that are rising up everywhere in different ways 
that are bringing forth glory to God, that are repenting and calling upon Christ and really begin to be forced by the circumstances God has given us to refocus attention on what they actually can influence. This is where a knowledge of biblical history, not to mention world history, is in order. Because just turning to what happened when the children of Israel were in Egypt, I don't think anybody anticipated Red Sea parting. When it looked like the Jews under the the Persians were about to be eradicated, I don't think anybody anticipated a king having insomnia and, and having somebody read a story to him that changed the outcome. So I think what you're saying is be faithful where you are and leave the big stuff to God. Yes. Well, one of the things, particularly in this time, is uh, we ask people this question, and I found this to be true in a lot of areas, Andrea, uh, over the years, is to give me your definition. And in this case, give me your definition of politics. What is politics? And we all think we know what it is, but give me a working definition. And it's, it's very difficult for people to do that. And so they'll say, well, what's yours? And I said, well, I have thought on this. And so the way we define politics is this. Politics is the process by which our society determines the standard of ethics to the social issues. Most people have never thought of it like that. They've never actually taken the time to think of it. So what is the standard of ethics? If you were to ask what we call the liberals or the leftists or the communists, what are they doing? They're using the process for what? To determine a standard of ethics. For what purpose? To apply them to social issues. Well, this is exactly what Christians ought to do, except we're hesitant about the kingdom of God and the ethics of God on earth. And so it is a battle for that. And then when you're talking to your neighbors and your friends and you have disagreements, it's far better to find out, okay, so what are the consequences of your ideas? Because a lot of Christians that I've met over the years were like me. When the Lord converted me, I was a socialist. I remained a socialist as a converted believer. The problem is I didn't know I was a socialist. To me, socialism was geographical, not ideological. It was only through time and learning and training and discipline and mentoring that I come to realize that my definitions were all wrong. And and so This is true of of people all around us. I mean, many of them have the same schooling I have. I even taught in a, uh, I teach in in, uh, homeschool co-ops and I taught in a homeschool co-op and I had 19 students in that class. And I asked them if they all, if they thought that minimum wage was a good idea. Every student in a reformed homeschool co-op thought it was a good idea. And so when I asked them to explain their ethical understanding of that to me biblically, they were unable to do so. So then I was able to take them into the scripture and to show them why ethically this is a really bad idea. It's not just arguing the consequences of it, because if it's a bad idea ethically in God's economy, the consequences can't be good. And so you understand why these these 
these consequences and learn and have be able to have conversations about it. But understand too that their ideas have roots. Where did this idea come from? How did they come to accept this? And what you discover in our day is either a lack of an understanding of biblical ethics or a misapplication of biblical ethics. They'll whitewash or, or take a broad brush to an ethical statement, which in its own sphere is absolutely right and it's misapplied. You have to walk people through that and you've got to be patient with it because th that's exactly how God has trained all of us. And particularly in a culture like ours that has been in uh, what I consider apostasy mode for the last 200 years in particular, uh, we have been getting further and further away from identifying things from their ethical standard, you know, what standard we measure it by. And so it takes time and we, we have to trust to the illuminating grace of God. So let me ask you this. I doubt sincerely anyone who's listening is 200 years old. And some would be very surprised to hear you say that America, our society, has been apostate for the last 200 years. So that means that people have to reorient themselves to what faithfulness means if, in fact, your statement is correct. Well, that is true. For instance, time-wise, what if, what if uh, the Lord came to you and said, your descendants are going to be in slavery for 400 years? Well, that's a fairly long time. You know, that's the way we would look at it. And, 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 and then your, your family goes through that, or, or because you have violated my Sabbaths, my land Sabbaths, I'm going to put you under the domain of a pagan ruler for set the next 70 years. And, and then you have these different time frames in scripture. Uh, you know, you start with Isaiah and you end with, uh, for instance, Ezekiel, and you cover approximately 200 years in there from the time that, that the Lord sent Isaiah to begin to warn Israel and Judah. And Ezekiel, of course, was in captivity. And, and you think about those things, you realize that God's timelines are so uniquely different than ours. I think one of the things where that's beneficial is that it takes away from this being able to be sold on this pitch that somehow you are unique and special in the march of history. It's just not true. We, we are special in the sense that if we are the Lord's anointed, uh, God's redeemed people, that before the foundation of the world, he set his eyes on us. He didn't do that for our sake. He set his eyes on us for his own namesake. Right. So that he would be glorified. Yes. So we're back and oftentimes in discussions with my guests, we get back to one's view of eschatology. And I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that eschatology is something that should not be argued, but it should be lived out and that you should believe that God is going to work all things together. So there are some eschatological views that promise people, don't worry, when things get difficult, it's not like you have to be salt and light. Don't worry, you're not going to be here. And so you can take comfort in that, which of course seems to be setting people up for incredible disillusion when they suddenly start experiencing things that would fall under the category of trials and tribulations. Mm, yes. 
Well, I, I can tell you that in our local area, the increase in counseling and in the marital conflicts within the Protestant community is fueled to a great degree by eschatological views because individuals who, who hold to a short-term view or let's get out of here view see themselves as a victim of God's sovereign working in history when he, uh, he brings upon them three things primarily, people, pressures, and problems. And their response to that is God is going to deliver them not by discipline of character and discipline of obedience, but he's going to get them out uh, of that so that they don't have, uh, you know, to go through those things. And of course, this leads to an increase of pressure every day that this doesn't happen. And whereas the, the view that says over time and in history, the gospel is going to conquer, then we are motivated to be faithful because there will be a time in history when the knowledge of the Lord will cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. If that is true, I don't know when it will be. I know it's not today, but I can be faithful in playing my part or what we call, you know, we got it from the Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation, but the stepping stone life. And that even converts over to the way we run our businesses. We call it the doctrine of continuity or intergenerationality, which you just find in abundant supply throughout the word of God. We have a, a, a businessman's group we've had here in different cities uh, for decades now. And we get together to discuss planning and how to be more effective in the business community. And many of them are Christians here in my community. And you say that at different degrees and so on and so forth. But it is dominantly uh, dispensational, They the, the rapture culture, in terms of their, their background and their training. And so when we get together, uh, I'm known among them. I've had many discussions. I've interviewed almost every one of them over the years what we do, what we call a life interview. And so I will thank them for coming that morning and uh, how much I appreciate them to be being there that this morning to practice my eschatology. <laughs> and they all know what I mean. And we, we all have some humor about it. However, it has opened up tremendous discussions over the years because they realize that that is reality, that none of them are there to plan on how to get out. They're there to do that. And uh, uh, it, was, it was actually that as a young entrepreneur after the Lord converted me and I was in school and trying to figure out how to, to get my business up and going and all this kind of stuff. And I was inherently aware of the contradiction between how I did business and what I was being taught from an eschatological position because I didn't do anything in my business according to the doctrine of eschatology that I was being taught. I didn't do one single thing. And so there, there was this inherent conflict. So it is important uh, because it nurtures our hope, our hope in Christ. And, and that perhaps, you know, we look at Hebrews 11, perhaps it may, it may be true that, uh, and we know it's true in certain parts of the earth now, that there are those that had to live in caves and they were sought as under and, and they had other trials of their faith, uh, scourgings. And uh, we're reading again through the Fox's Book of Martyrs. But then there were others who conquered kingdoms. 
Well, as the Lord is pleased, that will be the way it is as time marches on, except we will see more and more as we go forward into the history that God will raise up men, women, and communities that will conquer kingdoms. You know, I was reading through Dr. Rush Juni's book, Thy Kingdom Come, because with everything that's happening, it's not bad to go back and look at things that you've looked at before. But there was one part that really struck me as being significant, that he says that a lot of people pray to be spared trials, tribulations, problems, when in actual fact, what the people of God need to do is to hate sin. In other words, that sin is what is more problematic to us than bad things that might happen to us or around us. And it was really the sort of thing like I was saying, wow, I, I read this before. Why did this never stick? And now it, it really impresses me that when I'm upset, when I'm concerned, when I'm anxious, is it because, like David says in Psalm 119, because God's law is disobeyed, or is it because I don't want bad things to happen to me? And it's, it's been a real interesting way to judge my own emotional response to things. Well, we have, uh, in this, this we've adapted uh, or adopted, as it were, uh, for family, uh, community activities, and our businesses. And that is, is that as a framework for response in life, we look to 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Ephesians 5.20, uh, giving thanks in all things unto God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what if, as Christians, we recognized that this, in fact, was the will of God for us, giving thanks in all things? And our framework response, in other words, we build a lifestyle that says, I know that this is God's will for me. Well, primarily because he just said it was. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And we were to build that around. Well, we then asked the question, how is it that God typically trains his disciples, his own children? And that happens through primarily three things from an external standpoint, and that is people, pressures, and problems. So what if we as Christians could develop within us, even, you know, like the social media, the politics, all of the stuff, the mass stuff, we could develop this response that thanks God that in his governing, he has brought these people, pressures, or problems to us that, you know, the psalmist David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted, for then did I learn thy statutes. Lord, help us to understand what you're doing. It's not what the, the Council on Foreign Relations or the Tri-Lateral Commissions or the Illuminati and all of that stuff, but what is the hand of God doing in our time? And we can then, if it's done by the hand of God, can we not respond in thankfulness? And the Lord is pleased to bring these people, pressures, and problems to us in order that he might grow us up into Christ and uh, examine it from you know, that direction. And we do this in our, our business developments. In fact, it is the first ethical standard in each one of our businesses is that we purpose to be thankful to God in his good providence, that he, to train us to be more faithful will send us people, pressures, and problems. And uh, it, it is incredible what that does to a culture and to an environment when you have people who purpose 
ahead of time to be thankful for those things. It's like the old joke, don't pray for patience because God will give you ample opportunity to work that muscle. It sounds like rather than being spared problems or difficult people, etc., that um, our goal should be, based on what you're saying and what the scripture says, to be able to confront all those things in a godly, faithful, righteous manner. Yes. I mean, if our goal was, Lord, train me, you know, the, the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 2, that it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. And what if our response was, Lord, I'm going to give you thanks for this. And what I desire most of all from you through this whole process, whatever it may be, people's pressures or problems, that you will train me and teach me to be faithful to what the word of God requires of me. It changes everything because you're no longer focused, per se, on the people pressures or problems, but on your response to God being so pleased to bring them to you. And and. It could be that God is saying, I'm reproving you for this reason. I'm correcting you, or I'm sending you instructions in righteousness. This is the way I'm providing light for the way that you are to walk. Well, it's so different in approach to say that all of this is going to cause me to grow up into Christ. So you don't focus on the people. They're just tools that God is pleased to use. You don't focus on the problems or the pressures. These are tools. It's not that we don't examine them, that we don't understand them. It's God pointing out to us that we failed in our due diligence or we're doing something wrong. Have we mistreated somebody that we need to set right? Uh, But the focus is God's glory. You know, Tim, we're coming to the end of the time here, but it strikes me that a lot of people might say, I want this. How do I know how to operate? And it makes me think of that book Rush Dooney wrote, Law and Liberty, that goes through the many facets of how God's law enables us to direct our paths so that as we are being sanctified, we have the tools, God's word, God's precepts, ordinances, and the the statutes that he gives us to know how to operate in the time he has placed us. Well, I, I, I have found that helpful for me is, for instance, to pray back to the Lord, the Word of God. Lord, you say that the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And we convert those over to lifestyles. Like in our counseling, a lot of times we have uh, we have an abuse ministry here, and it, it's, it's, it's sad to see what happens inside Christian homes, and in particular when men talk about being the heads of their homes, which they are according to the scriptures. So we developed a series of questions and we say, okay, as the head of your home, how have you exampled loving your wife as Christ loved the church? As the head of your home, how have you exampled to your wife self-control, to your children self-control? You know, and we go through these things as the head because as the head, the primary thing is that you example to others the behavior that scripture requires, because this is what Jesus said, that that he, he came to give us an example to set before us. I came not to be served, but to serve. And so if we set out that the great goal of our life is that no matter what anybody else does, no matter what they do or how they do it, I purpose in my heart and mind and affections to please God to the degree that I understand it. We will pursue that. 
and uh, it will be far more difficult for grudges or animosities or those kinds of things to get footholds inside of us and thus change our behavior to a people-focused behavior rather than a covenant-focused. Very good. I imagine there are people who are listening who say, I want more from this guy. Are there ways in which people can contact you or websites that you have that people can get further information on the sorts of things that you've been sharing today? Well, we actually don't have any social media out the output, primarily because we, we want to encourage people to develop real human relationships. They can contact me by email if they would like to do that at Tim Yarborough, that's T-I-M-Y-A-R-B-R-O-U-G-H 77 at gmail.com. And uh, we are going to be putting some resources up, but I'll tell you, we had an experience many years ago in my mentoring program, which was a wonderful reproof from the hand of God. We started out copying out with our, our different uh, mentors, our mentees that came into the program, copying out the word of God in James and, and in Proverbs. And it had such great effect because we were we, we learned that as they copied out the word of God, it began to ruminate inside of them. And, and it had the effect the word of God says it would have. Uh, it wouldn't return void. It cut into the thoughts and intents of the heart and all that. And so, of course, being an entrepreneur, we said, what we're going to do is become more efficient. And after about two years, we, we did some things in terms of shortcutting that process because we wanted to shortcut the process, right? We wanted to be efficient. <laughs> we immediately noticed a change in the conduct of the people coming into our program. I mean, it was immediate. And we began to cry out to God about what was wrong with them. <laughs> so, what we discovered is that the problem was, is that we had taken away the very tool God had given us. And that was the scriptures themselves and then, and, and the meditation. And, and so we stopped that. And uh, ever since then, it's been, you know, where the, we write out the scriptures and I've shared that with many over the years. And I literally have hundreds of testimonies of people who at a long distance have uh, wrote back and said, I think this has probably been the greatest experience of my scriptural studies is that I have wrote out the word of God and I find myself meditating on it and, and I find myself being cut and discerned and so forth. And that's exactly what God tells us it does. But we're also happy to have people come and visit, spend a few days with us and just participate with us in, in some of the things we do in the community. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate the time, Tim. And I know how busy you are in having your hands in many, 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 many pots and helping people in various ways. Listeners, make use of the email he gave you. I said Law and Liberty is a great place to start. Also, Dr. Rush Dooney's book, In His Service, which combines yes. the idea of biblical law and service and helping to establish a plan of charity. And Tim, a number of years ago, was very gracious, and he led our Book of the Month Club discussion on that book. So I'll put the link up to that as well. And once again, I am grateful for your listening to our podcast. If you have any questions on this or any other subject or suggestions, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And Happy New Year to you, Tim. Thank you. And to you as well, 2021 is going to be the year of the Lord.
Amen. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.